Have you ever had miscommunication issues in your house? Have you? Maybe between you and your spouse, maybe between you and your kids. Um, I think, if anything, if technology's done one thing for me and Emily, it has made communication harder, right? Um, because you can't always tell body language from a text. I'll tell you one text you can get from your wife that lets you know her body language. It's K with a period, amen? Uh, like, if you get K with a period, you know exactly what that means. But some of y'all probably remember this story. Several months ago, it's been actually about a year ago, um, our Civic at the time was having trouble with its side view mirror. Emily drove a nicer car than I did. I don't know about you in our house rules. Mama drives a nice car. Daddy drives a beater, amen? Uh, that's just the way it is in our house. And so what that means is she had a really nice Civic, and you would hit the turning signal on all the right. It had this fancy smart camera that would show you the right side of the vehicle. And on that car, of course, as all things are, the technology, it quit working. And so I researched in Google, which means I went to Google and said, how do I fix my camera? Uh, you know, and uh, I found out that you had to hold down the power button on the radio to reset the entire system, and that would reset the camera. And so she's driving down the road. I'm at home. I mean, I'm at the office at work. And I call her and I say, hey, are you driving? She said, yes, I'm driving. I said, well, I figured out how to reset your camera. She said, okay, tell me. And so I walk her through. I said, okay, what you're going to do is you're going to hold down the power button for five seconds. And when you hold down that power button, it's going to restart the whole entire system. She said, I can do it while I'm driving. I said, yeah, you can do it while you're driving. Even I even said on the article, you can do this while you're driving. And so sure enough, she's going down the road. She's on South Side. I remember it because it's so vividly. Uh, she's on South Side. She's turning by Country Castle, which could you take a moment for appreciate Country Castle. Amen. Uh, but anyway, she's turning by Country Castle. She says, are you sure if I hold down the power button, it's going to fix everything? I said, yes, just hold down the power button. So she says, oh, okay. And so I hear she holds down the power button, what I thought was power button, power button. And what happened? She says, the car stopped. And I said, what? I said, How, what, why did the car stop? She said, Nick, I, I'm trying to get off the road. Hold on, hold on. And so she gets, off the car, she gets off the road. And I was like, what did you do? And she said, well, I held down the power button. And I said, babe, what button did you push? She said, you know, the big red one that says start. Some of y'all don't understand. That's an ignition. So she held down the ignition button, turned the whole car off because there's the ignition button and there's the power button to the radio. And when I say power button, I mean the power button on the radio. When I say ignition, I mean ignition. So our words got crossed and she about totaled her car. All because of a miscommunication of her not really understanding what I'm getting at. Time and time again in the New Testament, time and time again in our own lives, I think we have a miscommunication with God. We don't really understand what he is saying to us. We don't really understand what his word is trying to apply to us. And over and over again, wires get crossed, sayings get lost, and plans get wrecked. All because we have a miscommunication problem with God. And let me tell you something. If you ever think, well, if I, I do have miscommunication problems with God, you're in good company because the disciples had miscommunication problems with God. These brothers, I love this in the story, they're walking again down the road. And this is the second time in Mark's gospel that we have what many people call a crucifixion wink, right? This is the second time in Mark's gospel where Jesus tells them plainly, hey, I'm about to die. Look what he says here in verse number 30. They went on there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Verse 32, and they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So this is the second time, once again, that Jesus is just walking with these men, just with his disciples, and he tells them, guess what? I'm going to go die. 
not only am I going to die, not only am I going to be given to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're going to kill me, remember that from the last chapter in Mark's gospel, but he tells them what? He adds this little detail. He says, not only am I going to die, but I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to, I'm going to be handed over to these people, and they're going to kill me. Not only are they going to kill me, but I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to rise again. And I love here at the bottom of this, verse number 32, look what it says. They were afraid to ask him what was really going on. And they were afraid, why? Because you remember the last time Jesus tells them he's going to die, Peter says, no, you ain't, Lord. No, you're not going to die. And what did Jesus do? Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan. So maybe they all whispered and thought, we don't know what he's talking about, but we're going to act like we do. Yes, Lord. Yep, 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 blank stare. I'm just going to say, yes, Lord, whatever you're thinking. Uh, we're too afraid to really ask what's going on. Because here's what Jesus is laying out for them. He's laying out for them that if you want to follow me, the path I'm walking is the path of death. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you better count the cost. Because this road does not lead to wealth and prosperity. This road does not lead to you getting everything you've ever wanted. This road leads to a criminal's cross in the middle of town. Jesus is letting them know that, guess what? The Son of Man, he came to do all these things. By the end of the day, the Son of Man came to what? To be slain and to take away the sins of the world. You see this powerfully because at the end of the day, Jesus was not trying to draw crowds. He was trying to make disciples. This is counterculture to our modern-day Christian movement. We think, hey, the more people that come, the more people that come, then that's success in the kingdom of God. Let me promise you, church, at the end of the day, every church will not be based on their attendance, their building, or their capital. At the end of the day, every church will be based on their disciples. Are we making disciples? Do we have people who really will count the cost and follow Jesus no matter what? Follow Jesus even when things don't go my way. Follow Jesus even when I suffer, because I promise you, if you follow Jesus, you will suffer. Follow Jesus no matter what the culture is saying, no matter what your uh, friends are saying, no matter what anybody else is saying, say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Because that's what it means to be a disciple. It doesn't mean I check a box on Sunday and I live like I want to on Monday. It means, though, that every day of our lives, we are checking the box, hey, I'm submitting to Christ today. Every day I'm choosing to follow Jesus. Through his spirit working in my life, I'm empowered to follow him. And these men missed it. Think about how ironic this is. How ironic it is that these men missed what Christ was saying. I think one of the biggest travesties in the church today, in a very dangerous situation in the church today, and it's my first point for you because I really want you to see what I'm getting at. The most da- one of the most dangerous things we can do in the church today is... When we hold God to promises he didn't make. That's a very dangerous thing to do. When we hold God to promises he did not make. I hear this time and time again in counseling with couples. I hear this time and time again with talking to individuals. We oftentimes make up our own definitions of what God has promised when the truth is they are far from Scripture. If I had a dollar every time I was in a counseling session with a couple and they said, well, you know, God just wants us to be happy. And I'm thinking, have you read this book? Not your best life now, right? Uh, Have you read the actual Word of God? Have you actually read that the Word of God tells us that the purpose of marriage is not to make us happy, but the purpose of marriage is to make us holy? That the purpose, purpose of marriage is for us to have joy in the Lord and also for the sanctification of each other to work through, God to work through each other and make us more like His Son. And at the end of the day, marriage itself is a signpost pointing to the cross. 
Because oftentimes, once again, we make up our promises that God has promised, and that gets extremely dangerous. I'll tell you four ways this gets extremely dangerous real quick. The first thing is it leads to disappointment. When you start making up things that God has promised, think, well, I, I, I think God has promised me this, and you, it's going to lead to disappointment. Why? Because you're holding God to a promise he never made. And let me tell you something. God, is not, God has not promised you that he will honor every promise you think he has made. He has promised to honor every promise he has made. Very different thing. It leads to disappointment. Not only does it lead to disappointment, but it leads to us making a false God. Because when we make God hold promises that he didn't make, we make our own God. We take the living, true, and active word of God, and we twist it to be our own words, making up our own theology, making up our own doctrine, making our own religious systems, making our own way of relationship, and that's not what the Bible calls the Christian faith. Number three, we, we lead others astray. We lead others astray. Why? Because we start telling people, well, this is what God has promised us. This is what God wants for you. This is what God has said when it's not really what God has said. It is a dangerous day and age we live in. I was even talking with Logan Frederick. He was back in the back. He's downstairs suffering through Hunger Games downstairs, amen, our uh, kids program. It's not actually called Hunger Games, by the way. Uh, but he's down there with the kiddos this morning, and he told me we we're talking about just how attendance has shifted after COVID. We we're talking about fall break this morning, as you can tell. We're maybe a little low, a couple families here or there. Pray for the meeks. They're suffering at the beach, amen. Uh, but over and over again, we're reminded that things really shifted after COVID, and he kind of brought up a good point. He said, COVID kind of shifted things. Don't get me wrong. But he also said this, he said, if you were to ask me, I think TikTok theology has really shifted things. And how true it is that anybody with a camera and a microphone can tell you what they think God has said, and they can twist scripture. And if you look long enough, if you search hard enough, church, you will find somebody on TikTok or on Facebook who supports your views, your opinions, and it feeds you and fluffs you up full of pride, thinking you know the truth of scripture. And when it departs from the end of the day, from 2,000 years of church history, we are not so smart and wise in our modern age. We've discovered something in the text that our church fathers have not known for thousands of years. It's crazy to me how you can find anybody and everybody saying all these things. And they'll twist scripture and say, well, the Greek word here, when the people who literally are the best of the best of the best translated this Bible in front of you from Greek and Hebrew, they have more degrees that can cover up a small bathroom, amen? And at the end of the day, we think, well, I'm going to trust this person on TikTok who's living in mom's basement eating mom's meatloaf, amen? And I'm going to believe what they say. And so we lead others astray. Number four, what happens when we start holding God with promises he didn't make? We question God's goodness. Doesn't that sound like the Garden of Eden? We begin to question God's goodness. We say, well, you know, God didn't do what he said he would do, so therefore God's not good like he said he was. Look at me very carefully here. If you don't walk away with anything I say today, this is the only thing I really want you to walk away. Regardless of anything that happens in your life, God's goodness does not change. That is a concrete fact that is not up for debate. If you lose everything you own, God's character does not change. If you literally had the worst possible day of your life, God's goodness and radiance and holiness does not change. Your circumstances change, but God does not change. He is still good. I love what the psalmist says about this. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Because let me tell you this. God, once again, did not promise you wealth and prosperity and health. I wish he did. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice all of a sudden you get saved, Jess, and all of a sudden God said, here's your million dollars because the Father of Heaven cares for you. It was just uploaded. Our church would be full, right? Wouldn't it be awesome that if you come up here, I could smack you in my jacket and go, yee, 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 and hit you and you'd fall down and be healed? 
Some of y'all remember that Benny Hinn clip there. Most of you are thinking, who's Benny Hinn? Wouldn't it be amazing if I could hit you in the forehead and say, be healed, and you fall out on the floor, start, you know, twitching, and all of a sudden you're healed? Wouldn't that be awesome? But look at me. God promises you something better than millions of dollars in physical restoration. God promises you something so much better. You know what Christ promises us? He promises spiritual restoration. You know what Christ promises you that's better than that? He doesn't say you'll have all those things. No, Christ makes this promise to us. He says what? I'll be with you. When you're going through the worst possible circumstances in, in, in life, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I'll stick closer than a brother. When you are faithless, what does Christ say? I'll be faithful. God will be with you. Because let me tell you something. When you are facing such a thing as cancer, money doesn't fix it. When you're facing such a thing as that, guess what? But God's spirit in our lives changes us even going through the valley. That's what the psalmist says. Remember that? Though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he's just feeling the shadow of death. He's not feeling death itself. Because Christ's presence even repels the very power of death itself. Isn't that awesome? Number five, I'm going to teach you a seminary word. Y'all ready for this? Y'all ready for a $10 word? I'm going to give you for two cents. Apostasy. Sounds pretty fancy, doesn't it? Apostate is what they call it as well. Apostasy means those who have abandoned the faith. So number five, the last thing that happens when we, may, we hold God to promises he did makes, it leads to apostasy. It leads to people abandoning the faith. Because if you're constantly disappointed in God, if you're constantly questioning God's goodness, if you're constantly making God into something he's not, if you're constantly leading others astray, if you're constantly doing all those things, you know what's eventually going to happen? You're going to quit following God. It's extremely dangerous. That's section one. Let's keep going. Amen? All right, section two. Let's look what happens here. Look what happens in the next little bit. So that's the dangers of holding God to promises he didn't make. Because Christ said, guess what? I'm going to go die. Verse number 33. And they came to Capernaum, And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent for the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus tells them, I'm going to go die. And on the way to the house they're staying at, what are they talking about? They're talking about who's the best among them. Jesus, their Lord, literally the creator of all, the one who holds reality together, tells them, I'm going to go die, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be resurrected. And on the way, you know what they're saying? Who, which one do you think is the number one among us? Who do you think is sitting closer to Jesus? Maybe Peter, James, and John were talking about, hey, we got to go up on the mountain. Y'all didn't. You know, maybe that's what it was. Who, who knew what kind of rivalry broke out? But they know that what they're talking about should not be needed. Why? Because they're met with silence. You ever looked at your kid when you ask them a question and you're met with silence? You know they're guilty. You'll say, why did you do that? And they'll just look at you like a deer in headlights. They have no idea why they did that. And so at the end of the day, they're, they're, he's met with silence. Because look what it says. Look what Jesus says to him. He says, sit down. He said to them, if you would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of of all he took a kid put him in the midst of them taking him in his arms he said to them whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me when i was studying about this something kind of clicked i never saw before and that's usually how the lord works when you study through the text is this is capernaum now, if you remember, at the early chapters of Mark, we told you that Jesus, when he was at Capernaum, most theological opinions are he was staying at Peter's house. 
He was at Peter's house. Why? Because you remember the story when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law? Y'all remember the story? He raises her up because she's sick, right? So there's pretty good connections here that when Jesus and them go back to Capernaum this time, that they're staying in Peter's house yet again. Here's what's mind-blowing. There's pretty good, once again, I'm not reading into the text here. Once again, that's the Bible. Here's our opinion, right? Our opinion is that there's a good chance that this child who is in their midst, who Jesus pulls from the home and sits in their midst and wraps up in his arms, this is probably more than likely one of Peter's own children. Probably more than likely one of Peter's own children. And he's running around and Jesus grabs this child, wraps him in his arms and says what? Look at that powerful statement there. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. He's talking about being a servant. He says, you want to argue about who's the greatest? The greatest among you is a servant to anybody. How countercultural is that in American culture right now? If you want to be the best of the best, guess what? You stand on people, you crush them, you destroy them, you don't serve them. But in the kingdom of God that the book of Acts says kind of flips the world upside down, what does Christ say? Christ says, if you want to talk about who is the greatest, then be the least. Serve people. Serve people so much so that you'll serve anybody. And he takes this child, and many of you, probably I'm going to say this, many people misquote this verse. And they think this verse is about children ministry. It's really not. He takes this kid and he puts him in the middle of them and he wraps this child in his arms. By, by the way, this is probably the most touching verse in all the Gospels. This is the only verse that talks about Jesus actually wrapping the child in a hug. Pretty powerful if you ask me. He wraps this child in a hug and he says, what you do for one of these children says a lot more about you than what you're doing out there. Now once again, in our culture, it kind of doesn't click that well. So let me kind of walk you through it. In Palestine at this time, ancient history, children were not really considered a blessing among the pagans. Now, among the Israelites, they were considered a blessing of the Lord, a heritage of the Lord. But among unbelievers, among Romans, they were considered to be a burden. Because children didn't bring anything to the home. Children just take things from the home. Have you ever had a newborn in your life? Amen. You ever had a baby you brought home and literally that baby does nothing but rob you? Robs you of finances because formula's worth daggum $50 a card. I don't understand. It's theft. Every time I go high, I was thinking, how is this stuff this expensive? Then I remember Chris and Sam. I'm thinking, God, our formula's cheap. Uh, amen. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's crazy expensive. And then you go get diapers. You're thinking, how can some of you poop in cost this much? Uh, you know, and then you go to the doctor visits. And it's like every time you go to the doctor, it's a pop. And you're thinking in the back of your head, why do I pay for insurance to go to the doctor to pay somebody else for more money than we already paid them? And then you go and, you're t- and you go for, to work and you come home and you're tired and exhausted and your wife's tired and exhausted, you kind of relieve her. And then throughout the night, they wake up all the time. They suck the life out of you, praise God. Amen. Can I get a witness? Reese is back there quietly saying, Amen. He's crying on the inside with me. Me and him and Chris are in a support group together. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's just exhausting. Because that child will take everything from you. But here's the twist. Pay attention here. But you will give everything to that child because you understand the worth of that child being in your life. So you will serve this child who does nothing for you strictly out of not obedience, but strictly out of love. 
You will pour everything you've got into this little baby who does nothing for you, who can bring no worth to the table because in your eyes they're worthy more than you can put a fathom price tag on because they're priceless. There are two things in my life that are crucified by flesh that Christ has used powerfully. Two things in my life that Christ has used to reveal my selfishness and destroy it with the power of the cross. You know what those two things are? Marriage. When you get married, you find out how selfish you are. Because that, that's the beauty of it. And that's why I tell people the first years, if somebody tells you it's all honeymoon, it's all great, they're lying. Because you're not living together. When you're not, you know, when, you're, when you do get married, you come together, you start figuring out they brush their teeth like a, like a psychopath. And you're thinking, who does the towel like that? You start thinking through your head, who doesn't make the bed when we get up in the morning? Emily didn't used to make the bed before we got married. And then she, after we got married, she was like, oh, we got to make the bed. Uh, you know what I mean? I'm thinking, who doesn't make the bed? Uh, you know, and I started figuring out all these things. And then, then she looked at me crazily because when I would do laundry, I would throw everything Rondell in the washer. I thought, you don't have to sort. And then she's like, yes, you do have to sort. So you figure out all these things. Why? Because at the end of the day, marriage crucifies your flesh because it reveals your selfishness and makes you serve someone else. The second thing in my life that God used was children. Children have a way of revealing to you what you're really good at, but they also have a way of revealing what you're really bad at. You want a crash course in theology? I read this quote. It's so powerful. It says, a crash course in theology is children. Why? Because you have a little image bearer who looks like you, who you love unconditionally, who you want the best for, but in spite of you, they look at them looking like you and you loving them unconditionally, they refuse to obey you in what you know is right. Isn't that how Christ views us? We look like him. He loves us unconditionally, and he just wants the best for us. And we look at him and say, no. I'd rather eat ice cream than eat the food you want. I'd rather do this. I'd rather do that. So your marriage and your children have ways of just demolishing your flesh. And that's what Christ is getting at. He says, what you do for the people who cannot serve you back, that says more for you than anything. I saw this uh, thing on Facebook. If you see it on Facebook, it's got to be real, amen. So Abe Lincoln said, it's a, this, this post was going around, and actually I agree with it, so I said I'll share it with the church today. Uh, the, Christian you, the Christian you are when the restaurant comes back with your food wrong for the fourth time, when people in front of you are holding you up in the checkout line, when the retail service worker is rude to you, or how you treat people and they don't believe or act or look or dress like you speaks louder than the Christian you are on Sundays serving on every volunteer team at the church or singing in the worship team or standing behind the pulpit who you are in those situations says a lot more about your faith than who you are in this situation in all of those situations they pull out the flesh in you don't they they pull it out quickly and they reveal just how much we need the gospel to remind ourselves that we are who Christ says we are. Because you know, every time I act selfishly, I'm acting not in my identity found in Christ. I'm acting in my identity found in myself and my worth. My own worth I try to establish. Because I'm fighting for my will to be done instead of God's will to be done. Isn't that what you do in, your, in, this, in sin at the end of the day? It's you selfishly desiring for you to be first. You know why I get annoyed when Emily wakes me up at 3 a.m. and says, it's your shift? Because I love my sleep for my own body more than I love the food for my child's body. That's why I hate it. Because it makes me crucify my flesh and take my tiredness and say, my tiredness does not matter. My child matters more than my tiredness. 
But you know why I get annoyed? It's because I'm thinking, why can't she do it? Because I'm putting her, my needs above her needs. You see what I'm saying? Because every problem I've ever had in my marriage, every fight I've ever had in my marriage, Emily's writing this down thinking, oh yeah, keep talking, big dog. Every time we, I bring, it's because literally at the end of the day, it's my selfish desires literally wanting to be first. I want her to do things my way. And when she doesn't do things my way, guess what I do? I get mad and angry and frustrated and act like a child. Can I get an amen from all the fellas? Can I get a testify? All right, moving on. How does this play in at the end of this sermon? How does this play in to this, uh, this point of the guys at the end? We'll, we'll wrap it all together. Get with me. John said to them, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was not following us. John speaks up and says, hey, hey, we saw somebody casting out demons, and we stopped him because he was not following us. We shut that thing down because he's not with us. This is the only time in Mark's gospel that John speaks, and Mark blasts him. Mark puts him on blast. He says, hey, we saw a guy casting out demons, and we closed that down. We went through like a health inspector and said, you do not pass. You get an F. You fail because you're not with us. You're not up to code. Because piggybacking on our last point, Christ wants us, point number two, Christ wants us to act childlike. He does not want us to act childish. We should act childlike, have childlike faith, have childlike wonder, have childlike a lot of things, but we should not act childish. There's a big difference in the two. Childlike is wonder, is amazement. There's nothing like seeing children's face when they see something for the very first time. It's like mind-blowing. Like when you take your kids to see fireworks for the first time, seeing their face, wow, whoa. But it's really bad when you try to put them in the car seat trying to save their life and they act childish. And they kick and scream, right? Because at the end of the day, there's a huge difference between acting childlike and childish. And John here is acting childish. But what does Jesus do? Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against you is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Our point number three, church, at the end of the day, massive statement here that has to deal with us being selfish and really saying, well, you've got to be like us to do ministry with us. I want you to notice this, point, our last point. People don't have to be like us to follow Jesus with us. People do not have to be like us to follow Jesus with us. Guys, let me remind you of this sobering fact. There's not going to be a Baptist-only section in heaven. You know what I'm saying? There's not going to be a Church of Christ where you got to walk by because they're thinking, no music here. Some of y'all get that next week. There's not going to be a Pentecostal section where they get wild and out, and then there's a big, big room divider for the Baptists because they think we can't act like that. There's not going to be a contemporary service and a hymnal service. There's not going to be, well, African people, you go here. Oh, Americans, you go here. Oh, Spaniards, you go here. No, the Bible says this, what? Every tribe, nation, and tongue will be there. At the end of the day, you don't have to look like us to follow Jesus with us. You don't even have to act like us 
to follow Jesus with us. Because so oftentimes, we oftentimes forget that if somebody is following Jesus, what do I mean by following Jesus? I mean, if they truly believe the gospel, if they truly believe that Christ is who he said he was, he did what he said he would do, and the only way to get to the Father is through Christ, if they believe that doctrinally, at the end of the day, they're following Christ. That our methods may differ. The things we believe and really hold on to may be different. But as long as we believe the Bible together, as in, like I said, we align on the scriptures in the Bible, then they're following Jesus with us. And it's sad to say if Christianity has done one thing worse than any other world religion has, and it's, it's plagued us, is we, we shoot each other more than we shoot the enemy. We fight each other and argue with each other. At the end of the day, when the truth of it is, we should be cooperating for the sake of ministry. Because look at me here. People are not objects in the way of ministry. I mean, obstacles in the way of ministry. People are objects of the ministry. They're not obstacles. You don't say, well, if so-and-so would get on board, we could do things. No, we forget that. Remember, they're not your enemy. They're the mission field. So we have to cooperate together to see people come to know Christ. Because John says, well, we need to shut these people down. Jesus says, no. Did you notice the catch there? He says, don't shut them down because if he is doing mighty work in my name, I'm allowing it to happen. There are so many great things in the church today that could happen if we put our personal preferences on the back burner and put the will of God on the front burner. He says, you know what? They might do things a little different than us, but God is using them to win people in a mighty way. Because at the end of the day, there's a lot of things that happen that are our personal preferences. If you were to ask me a third place where I believe God can do some of the most powerful work of crucifying your flesh is marriage, kids. Some of you thinking, I ain't, got, I ain't married and I ain't got kids. You know the third place that God does his best work is the church. Because you know what God does through the power of his spirit? God uses the power of his spirit to work through the power of his word to be applied by the power of his people. I'm going to say that again. God uses the power of His Spirit inside of us. The Holy Spirit works through us. Through the power of His Word, you've got to read the Bible. And God uses the Spirit to apply the Word through the people, through the God's people, which are the church. If you show me a Christian who says, I can read the Bible by myself and I don't need the church, I'll show you a Christian who has not read the Bible. Because there is no such thing as a loner Christian. There is no such thing as somebody who is believing and not a part of a local church. If you were to go to the Apostle Paul and say, hey, I believe in Christianity, I believe in the Bible, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the local church, Paul would say, you're a liar. Because you have to have a body. Because you know what happens? If I were to cut my pinky off, my pinky would die because it's not connected to the body. At the end of the day, we have to be connected with each other. And that means, guess what? Because we're connected with each other and we have not been fully redeemed, you know what that means? We're going to fight and argue over stupid, silly things. We're going to fight and argue over stupid sort of things. Somehow I remember a couple of years ago, our church got a little, it wasn't even an argument, it was a squirmish over how much we should pay the trash guy. Y'all remember that several years ago? Like somebody was like, we should pay him this much, we should pay him that much. And it was like, it was crazy, over, over trash pickup. I was thinking, where's the verse for this? Because we are historically known for arguing and fighting over all the wrong things. 
And that's why I love being a Southern Baptist, because you know what our biggest thing is I'm most proud of being a Southern Baptist? Is I'm very proud that we have a great heritage. I'm very proud that we believe the Word of God, I think, better than any other religious group on the planet. I really do believe that. But you know what I love about the Southern Baptists more than anything? The cooperative program, where we all cooperate and put money together to fund God's mission around the globe. Because at the end of the day, it's not about my preferences. It's not about your preferences. It's not about my worship style, your worship style. It's about what brings God the most glory. And you know what dwelling in unity means? Dwelling in unity means you have to put your own selfish desires behind you and say, what's best for the church? What's best for the church? What's best for our kids' ministry? If you really want to say, hey, I'm a strong, strong believer. I truly believe that I'm a great Christian. Where are you serving at? How are you applying the Word of God? Because let me tell you something. If you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. If you're too big to serve, I got too much going on, Pastor Nick. You don't understand. I got too much. I got kids. I got a wife. I got a, all this business. I got all these things. You understand? I, I ain't got time to serve. I would tell you, brother, if you're too, once again, if you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. Because true servant leadership, true loving your family, true loving people in our church, true loving the community is only found when you put on a towel on your shoulder and you get you a wash basin. You go around and you wash people's feet and say, I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. And how you treat people that serve says more about you than how you treat your pastor. How you treat our workers, how you treat our staff here says so much more about you than how you treat the highest in honor among us. Because you should do for me what you should do for anybody else in this room. You should treat everyone in this room the same as you treat even our elders and everyone else. You should treat everyone the same. Why? Because you're here to serve. If you don't want to serve here, I would just, I'm going to say a strong statement. Some of you are going to like, I can't believe you said that. Then you need to go somewhere else where you should serve. And you can serve. Because God did not save you to sit on a pew and just get fed. God saved you to get fed to go to work. So let's be busy building the kingdom of God by not talking about who is the greatest, who's the goat. But let's get busy serving. Because you know what happens? When your hands are busy, your mouth don't have time to run. You ever notice people at work that complain the most are laziest? Don't point at them, amen. You ever notice that? Because at the end of the day, when your hands are busy, your mouth ain't got time to run. So if you find yourself, I wish somebody would do that, maybe God wants you to do it. There's two things you can do in church. You can come here and look at problems, or you can come here and try to fix problems. Who's the greatest? Let's serve people like Jesus served us, and Philippians 2 reminds us. Let's love people like Christ has loved us. Let's truly, truly understand that we are all put here for the purpose of being a servant. Won't you come? Won't you come? Every head to bow, right?